welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. Has special counsel Robert Mueller crossed a line? President Trump set out early in the Russia investigation with his latest move, a reported subpoena of the Trump Organization. The New York Times is reporting that Mueller subpoenaed the Trump Organization for documents in the first known instance of the special counsel demanding records directly related to President Trump's businesses. Joining me is William Banks, professor at Syracuse University Law School. Bill, how does this subpoena fit in with the news that Mueller began examining a broad range of transactions involving Trump's businesses, as well as those of his associates back in July? Well, I think, you know, this is is an expansion of the investigation, but it, it really shouldn't be regarded as a as a surprise, I think, because the the extent to which the, the financial world uh, from the Russian side has influenced the, uh, the activities of those who are trying to uh, in effect, the election has long been a subject of, of Mueller's uh, staff's concern. So now going after uh, these records will uh, provide more details about the relationship of any Russian financial interests and any uh, Trump business ties. Mueller's mandate is pretty broad with as the Russia question and any matters that arose or may arise directly from the investigation. Isn't that pretty broad? It's incredibly broad, and I think it, you know it was written that way on purpose. You, you can't tell at the outset where an investigation like this may lead. This is not unusual, I think, and now we're seeing that financial crimes uh, could potentially be uh, beyond. You know, in addition to those that we've already been focusing on, obstruction, uh, lying to members of the of the prosecutorial team, failure to comply with. Uh, requirements of foreign agent registration and like. This is just another chapter. Could it also be a possible charge of conspiracy now that there is the indictment of the Russians and there is evidence of a push in 2015 to build a Trump Tower in Moscow, Trump's involvement in controversial Soho development in New York with Russian associates and more. What are the possibilities of conspiracy charges? Yeah, the <clears throat> conspiracy is a is a, a better legal descriptor of what we've uh, euphemistically referred to as collusion. And the conspiracy laws are complex, and they're not all the same. But in general, there has to be some sort of an overt agreement, uh, understanding on the part of the conspiring officials that they were up to something that was in violation of the law. So mere tolerance or awareness that, uh, say, a Russian was uh, going to use their financial uh, resources to try to affect uh, the election outcome may not be sufficient. But, uh, you know, awareness of it and then uh, sort of a tacit agreement or a steering of those activities, as may have been the case with, uh, with Donald Trump Jr., at that July uh, 2016 meeting that we've uh, talked about so many times. The Trump Organization says it's been cooperating with Mueller's investigation, and it's unclear what prompted Mueller to actually issue a subpoena. Are there reasons he might do that besides the Trump Organization refusing to cooperate? I mean, might he want to make sure that he has everything 
Yes, I mean, it's that's a good point. And indeed, up till now, anyway, the Trump organization has been very uh, cooperative and responsive by all accounts uh, in producing records that are sought for. But the subpoena does, as you say, provide some insurance that that everything is coming is forthcoming that might be relevant to the question that's asked in the subpoena. Obviously, a subpoena is enforceable, and if for some reason things are not fully uh, uh, sought uh, or not fully provided, then the uh, then the prosecutors can try to enforce it. Bill, let's let's talk about uh, Trump and the possibility of his trying to fire Mueller. He's never said explicitly that he would fire Mueller uh, if the prosecutor went after his finances, but he did suggest to the New York Times last July that his finances would be a red line uh, where Mueller's investigation shouldn't go beyond. Um, Trump is in the middle of this high-level staff shakeup, which could include AG Jeff Sessions. What would happen if Trump tried to have Mueller fired? Well, you know, we've talked about this before, and and it's hard to know for sure. But if he did replace Sessions, uh, say, with Mike Pompeo or someone who's closely uh, uh, aligned with Trump and Trump's views, we could have to revisit the firing questions all over again. Certainly the attorney general could do it on on the order of the president. Uh, but in, then, indeed, we have, I think, a lot of fuel for the fire that Congress would need to uh, restart an investigation on its own, appoint an independent counsel of its own, or even begin impeachment proceedings. <laughs> if Mueller gets so far as to uh, indicting members of the Trump family and would begin to seek pardons, I think we'll have a similar kind of impasse. It could get very ugly, even uglier than we've uh, been witness to so far. The Republican Congress has so far seemed unwilling to make any moves in that area. In fact, we know that the House committee investigating uh, the Russia connection came out with the Republicans on it, came out with uh, a, a whitewash without finishing really the investigation without having, you know, subpoenaed a lot of people that they that are that Mueller is, is subpoenaing or getting a lot of documents. So, I mean, is there any indication that that if the House remains in Republicans hands, that that it would actually go toward hiring a special counsel and impeachment? Well, these, you know, it would take the developments that we just speculated about, I think, attempting either to fire Mueller or the president beginning to issue pardons that would push us in that way. I think by now the Republican committee that released that, white, as you call it, a whitewash, uh, should be embarrassed by what they've released simply on the basis of the Mueller uh, revelations in the last couple of weeks or so. <clears throat> and far from there being nothing uh, to uh, to complain about in terms of Russian interference and and Trump associates' involvement. The Mueller team has already issued of what nineteen indictments, all count, and and there's no indication that the end is anywhere near. I called it a whitewash. I, sh- I should have said that it was more like an incomplete uh, investigation and a an, uh, seemingly incomplete conclusion, at least according to the Democrats on that committee, where there was certainly no cooperation toward the end between the Democrats and the Republicans on that House committee. Well, Bill, <laughs> we'll, we'll keep talking about this, and uh, because the same questions seem to keep coming up over and over again, though, 
Obviously, President Trump knows that Mueller has been investigating his finances because he knows the Trump organization has been cooperating with him. So we'll see what happens, Bill, and we will call on you again. Thank you so much for being with us here. That's William Banks. He's a professor at Syracuse University Law School. Buyer's plan to win antitrust approval for its takeover of Monsanto has hit some serious bumps. The company has not satisfied U.S. officials who are worried this $66 billion merger could hurt competition, according to two people familiar with the matter. Joining me is Jennifer Reese, senior litigation analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Jen, this is part of a wave of consolidation of seed and crop chemical firms. And Buyer did win antitrust approval for two prior deals. What are antitrust officials concerned about with this deal? Well, it's apparent that they have what we call both horizontal concerns and vertical concerns. So they have concerns about areas, seeds, for instance, and pesticides, where the companies directly compete selling the same product to buyers. And they're also concerned with where they operate in two different levels of a chain of distribution, like maybe they have IP or technology that they license to a competitor. Um, We think here, given the news that the DOJ might not be happy with what's been offered so far, that the issues that they're concerned about might be vertical. And the reason is because Bayer has already committed to selling almost all their seeds, as well as that overlap with Monsanto, as well as a pesticide that competes with a Monsanto pesticide. And it seems like most of the horizontal overlaps are sort of taken care of by what they've offered. But what we understand from Bloomberg News is that they've had talks with the Department of Justice who've said we need more. So it seems like perhaps what the Department of Justice is worried about are are these vertical overlaps. What kind of companies or what kind of assets are we talking about buyer having to divest? Well, it's really hard to say because these these industries are so complex, and I think a lot of people are a little bit baffled. But, you know, I've talked a lot to the BI industry analysts in this area, Chris Perella specifically, about what could be going on here and what else it could be. And so one suggestion he made is that it could be, now this would be a horizontal overlap, but it could be an overlap in research and development that they're both doing to get into digital farming. So we're providing collections of data tailored to farmers to give them information that would help them with their farming. That would be horizontal, and perhaps it might take divestiture of R&D. Another option is that it is about one of these situations where there's IP that their concern might be withheld from competitors. And in that case, it might be that they have to provide a license, out-license the product, so that there's another competitor that, that is able to market that product. Jury selection starts on Monday in the Justice Department's suit to stop the AT&T Time yes. Warner merger, which we've <laughs> talked about many times. Do you see similarities in the remedies the antitrust department wants there and in the Bayer Monsanto merger? You know, it's it's possible in a broad sense. And now, first, I should say there's no jury selection because that's just a judge trial. Oh, okay. So the, that's right. all right. How could I forget that? <laughs> but there, it's the they judge are who has a lot of personality. Go yes, ahead. right. They are starting on Monday. Um, I think opening arguments aren't until Wednesday, but they'll they'll start with some preliminary matters on Monday. Uh, the, what I see here as similar is that in the past, the Department of Justice has been willing to accept conduct commitments from companies to fix 
vertical problems. And we'll promise to license our technology. We'll promise not to discriminate post-merger, things like that. That's been pretty typical for a lot of vertical deals that raise issues. But in AT&T, which is purely a vertical deal, the Department of Justice said, no, we don't like that kind of a commitment. We need structural. We need assets divested. We have a number of reasons we don't like a behavioral commitment. And it could be that the same thing's happening with Bayer, that they had vertical issues they thought they could resolve with a behavioral commitment. And the Department of Justice is saying, no, we need a divestiture. Let's just talk for just a little bit about why the antitrust chief doesn't like the behavioral Mm -hmm. commitments, why he doesn't like having to have someone monitor Mm -hmm. what's going Mm -hmm. on. I think he has a couple reasons. That's one of them. He thinks the Department of Justice then has to have oversight for many years over this merged company and that that isn't their role, that they're not, that it doesn't work, that they aren't, it's not their role and it's not the right thing for them to be doing and, and they shouldn't be regulating companies. So I think that's one thing he sees. They're an enforcer rather than a regulator. And I think the other thing he has said, although I'm not sure if if the evidence bears this out, is that they don't work. That in the past, if you look at behavioral commitments that have been made, that they have hampered competition in some of these markets. Now, the deal has been the, now let's go back to Bayer-Monsanto merger has been before regulators for 18 months. How far is it from closing or is there a possibility the Justice Department may file a lawsuit to block this deal? Well, they certainly could. You know, if if the companies cannot uh, agree to commitments, if what's being demanded is just too much for them, it kills the economics of the deal or just unacceptable, then certainly they could abandon or they could face a suit if they want to pursue it. Um, It seems to me there still is is a place for an agreement to be reached because the DOJ is asking for more and Bayer has said it's willing to divest more. So I feel like they may still be able to reach an agreement here and it won't come to that. Uh, They do have an end date in their agreement of June 14th. And it looks like they're going to push right up against that. But however, it's an agreement. So the parties can agree to extend that if they need to. If they're having constructive talks with the DOJ, they think they're going to resolve this, but it's going to go a little bit past that. I I think they'd probably extend it. Does the fact that Bayer is based in Germany have any impact on this? At this stage, I would say not. Now, they did have to get through... um, uh, investigation by CFIUS, the Committee for Foreign Investment in the U.S. that we've heard quite a lot about lately in the context of Broadcom and Qualcomm. Um, they also were investigated by CFIUS actually for quite a long time. That might have even been over a year. And I think there was some pressure from some senators for CFIUS to put the to put some mitigation measures or stop this deal. But they did clear CFIUS. So the fact that it's a foreign buyer doesn't play in anymore. Whoever thought we would all know <laughs> what CFIUS stands for. Uh, about a minute here. How long do you expect the time warning trial to go on? Well, you know, it's funny because the judge had anticipated three weeks, but he's now saying six to eight weeks. And I'm not really sure what happened to double his prediction on timing. But I think there are a lot of witnesses and a lot of exhibits that are expected. And it's complex. And there are a lot of star lawyers yes. on that case. <laughs> so, uh, well, we'll look forward to hearing more about that case because it certainly is going to be probably a a standard for things to come. We'll get an inkling of what the mm-hmm. antitrust department is really looking into, as you always help us do, Jen. <laughs> That's Jennifer Rishi, senior litigation analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. And for more of her analysis, you can go to BIGO on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.